0: Scaffold is supported by the Architecture Foundation, bringing new voices to the conversation about architecture in London and around the world. For more information and upcoming events, visit architecturefoundation.org.uk. Art is increasingly being made sense of through its social contexts, An artist's identity and life experience have become influential factors in determining what art is shown today and how it's interpreted. The Tate Britain's recent rehang of its permanent collection is a testament to this reframing of art history. Many of the artists on display were born outside of the UK, and for the first time, half of the living artists shown are women. While critics have been divided about the Tate's curatorial approach, an aspect of the rehang that's often overlooked is the exhibition's scenography, literally the design and architecture of the exhibition itself. I'm Matthew Bunderfield. You're listening to Scaffold, and in this episode, I speak with the architect Astley Chichek about her work designing the Tate Britain exhibition. While Chichek's work has spanned various scales and typologies, since founding her own practice in Belgium in 2015, she began to specialize in exhibition design, drawn to the iterative and experimental qualities of working with what could be thought of as a miniature architecture at the scale of partitions and furniture, plinths, and screens. Her work resists displaying art in a way that's oversimplified or draws too convenient a conclusion, tending instead towards a productive ambiguity that respects the viewer's ability to experience and interpret an exhibition for themselves. I met with Chichek at the Tate Britain in May of 2023 to walk through the rehang of the permanent collection with her and talk more about her work. So here it is, my conversation with the architect and exhibition designer, Astley Chichek.
1: I'm Asli Cicek. I'm an architect based in Brussels. I have a little small office uh, focused on exhibition design, but also uh, interiors. And next to that, I teach at the University of the University of Kent. And I write about architecture and as, as part of editorial board of OASA journal.
0: Maybe we could start there, actually. I mean, there's a recent issue of OASA that was focused on the museum and scenography in the museum.
1: Yeah, I mean with my co-editors Martin Lief-Holge and Janche Engels I edited that issue which was OASA hundred and eleven staging the museum. And what we wanted to do there was to concentrate on the on everything else than the exhibition halls and the galleries in the museum. What makes a museum to kind of um yeah the spatial experience starting how you approach it, how you enter the foyer, um, and the side spaces, the depots. That was our main interest because we thought, or we found that there was a lot of reflections on the exhibition halls, galleries, how you show art, how the contemporary museum reacts to changes over in the art world. But we didn't find so many uh, thoughts or reflections bundled uh, on the machinery of the museum. So we tried to make an issue which concentrated on the side spaces or other spaces, mm. as much as um, uh, as much as just how the museum experience works. Mm. So that was our idea.
0: So with that in mind, I wonder if we could talk a bit about the staging of this museum in particular. And <laughs> I mean, to the extent that it's possible, we're at the foot of this grand staircase into the entrance right now, just off the uh, River Thames.
1: I think that Britain is kind of. It's very fragmented right the, the original building is from another era then you have the extension the which I love the Stirling extension then you have the contemporary um, uh, parts which is the, the staircase inside um, by Cursa syndrome and and there, there are a lot of things happening in the spaces so when you enter actually you enter in a very less a neoclassical way going up the stairs mm. once you're inside it starts, to, uh, it starts to become very layered mm-hmm. on many spatial experiences. In that sense, it's not, for instance, an easy topic. It could have been not an easy uh, article to write in um, staging the museum issue. Mm-hmm. And actually there has been an, uh, an article on uh, Sterling's uh, Turner Guy's, ex- Chlor Gallery's extensions, but not on the whole museum. So for me, it's this um, very, Layered spatial experience where you're much more maybe watching the art than the the spaces themselves What I like about this kind of going up the stairs and entering a museum is And leaving the outside world Behind you is also this kind of experience which is very focused to Make the boundaries between the public and private or inside and outside of the museum is sometimes something quite nice I think because you enter a certain world, it's kind of cultural production, um, and you can go to a museum more than one time. You don't have to actually see it and then, then you know, rush to it and then forget about it. So in that sense, I think there is something very nice about the classical idea of the museum, where you enter a different world and you watch art and you learn. It's, it's cultural education as well. Oh, okay. And of course, this opening up the museum to the public more, only through spatial interventions i think is is not enough i mean it's not about how inside outside works it's also about the the content of the museum which has to be more open
0: on that note let's go inside okay all right so we're in the main foyer now uh, just in front of the the new spiral stair and there's a group of school children descending it and we can see across into the divine gallery um, let's just find a space in the corner because before we go and see the exhibition I wondered if we could talk a bit about scenography as a practice I mean in a presentation you gave a couple of years ago you did this kind of parsing of the term and its etymology, which I thought was quite fascinating. And I wondered, is that something we could talk a bit about now? I mean, this, this kind of history of scenography and its origins and architectural practice.
1: So it's a term we borrow from theater, and it comes from theater. But in theater, again, in the antique uh, Greek, ancient Greek theater, it was the space, like the backdrop of the, of the stage which also housed the um, changing rooms of the actors and so on. But it was an architectural facade, or it became an architectural facade. And over a course of time, it became really the backdrop of a stage, of a covered theater. So there is, there, there is something quite very architectural in the, in the uh, core of that term, uh, which came from the architecture of the amphitheater. Uh, but then was much more taken over by uh, by th- by theatre stage arts themselves, and nowadays, actually, when we talk about scenography in architecture, we talk about exhibition architecture, exhibition design. I try to make that distinction often, but it doesn't always work out because it's as a term, it's kept as a scenography mm-hmm. uh, in architectural practice, and uh, and I find it. Really, a crucial point that, of course, in the theatre scenography, the, the viewer is, is static, is not moving, and everything else is moving. And you're watching a certain stage, a certain composition. Whereas in the exhibition design, being scenography, it's the other way around. The actors are static and the visitor is moving through them. So that is much more of an architectural experience, and you're much more part of that space.
0: I think at this point, we should start following the path through the exhibition itself. Um, and maybe as we find our way, we can talk a little more about the parallels you see between scenography and architecture. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people would understand it as a kind of architecture in miniature. When you're talking about the way a visitor moves through an exhibition, I think of a pedestrian. <laughs> 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 but how, how do you see scenographic work and architectural work in relation?
1: There there are certain differences in the first sight, but actually if you start to draw parallels, there are more similarities. For instance, you don't have a program. When you do scenography, you don't have the spatial program, but the curatorial uh, uh, story is your program. Maybe you don't have the technical issues as you would have on a facade of a building, but you have these artworks which are usually often very valuable, so you have to protect them and you have a lot of technical parts to solve, mm. it's just in another scale, and it's, some, it's often in an interior, so it's rather protected, and you can concentrate maybe on the contents more than when you're working on a large-scale project, which has more like functions, which are on a, which is somewhat clearer. But the parallel I see is really this this movement through space. I think there's also no backside or front side of a space, so you come in, and actually I can walk like in a city, in any direction in the exhibition. I mean, There's a certain path, but I always try to walk also the other way just mm-hmm. to see how the exhibition works for me.
0: Yeah, I mean, looking at other exhibitions you've designed, there are often multiple routes through the exhibition.
1: Yeah, and also this is because I prefer so far to, um, to design an object-based approach because I had the luck to to design exhibitions in beautiful buildings um, or I just recognized the space, the interior we have to work with, but I would not like to uh, block it or not hide it. And it was pretty much the same here as well. Also the question was, of course, for display cases, but I tried to avoid. Fix walls and change the space too much for a temporary exhibition. Mm. And therefore, even if we put walls, they are freestanding walls. And I think this layeredness of a view in an interior, in this like enfilade structures of, of older museums, that is something very rewarding. It's very beautiful to go through. Mm-hmm. And, and you're not so, um, you're not somehow uh, claustrophobic mm-hmm. of a mm-hmm.
0: And you can also concentrate on the works themselves. Mm. What I enjoy so much about what you've just explained is that there's a heightened sensitivity as a scenographer that you have to both the objects on display but also the architecture of the museum itself and that you are mediating on two different scales between the interior architecture and the objects that um, are ultimately sitting in the space. And so the question for me is how do you insert yourself between these two?
1: It's a difficult balance because sometimes um, their fascinations I draw from the content of an exhibition which can be very personal but I try to work with them that they're not only personal and they're recognizable or they support the story of the exhibition or the curatorial idea and that is not always easy as a process. I think architecture has to be really also itself and has to be very um, uh, self-confident, there is no shame about making architecture, I think it's... it's and we are also of course beyond the white box idea and so on, so I think things can be visible. I study a lot and I appreciate a lot Hans Hollein's work and and that is very theatrical, it's almost like anecdotal, it's very direct. You have palm trees, you have a tent, you have you know, very direct um, indications in an architectural composition, in interiors, mm-hmm. or oh, you had, I mean, most of the projects don't exist anymore. But I like this kind of self-confidence. Maybe it's very extravagant there, it's very, you know, it's very visible. I try to find a bit less uh, uh, appearance uh, way of designing, but in the end, the care we put on these display cases, for instance, when we design an exhibition, is extended to their second use or second lives. I mean, they are taking over as furnitures by people in their domestic surroundings and so on. And I think that is where I look for the balance, Mm. that they're well-designed objects, Um, maybe miniatures of architecture, maybe not, I don't know, furniture, yes, no, Mm. can't say. But they have a care in their design and that's what we try to do. And then they are, of course, not invisible because of that,
0: I guess. So where does the new exhibition begin? Let's go to there.
1: Let's go to, yeah. And then we're actually passing one, which we designed. Okay. So this is, but this is not the beginning of the exhibition. It's just that we're on thing on the interesting. Side. So
0: we're in the Henry Moore oh, hall. Yeah. hall. And we're looking at a, a table enclosed in a vitrine. And you have this kind of cruciform. Looks like a hardwood supports. Mm-hmm. And is this a kind of prelude to the system that we'll see in the other rooms, or is it a standalone?
1: Yeah, it is actually this object in two versions. We have uh, we have uh, spread throughout the other rooms. When you walk through, you will see them. Uh-huh. Um, and it has uh, yeah, it has this this task of surviving more exhibitions in the, or or serving for more exhibitions in the future. Mm. Um, but it's a table mm-hmm. with a glass hood on it.
0: I like the idea of visitors just standing where we are right now. Um, So we're in the middle of the Henry Moore Hall and we're facing this new vitrine. And I just want to behold it with you for a second. So could you talk a bit about the table? (laughs) Sure. (laughs) I mean, it seems absurd, but at the same time, I like the intensity of focus we could have on this object, which clearly is designed with a lot of care um, and sensitivity. So why don't we unpack it for a moment? Okay,
1: um, actually we're standing in a hall where we have other pedestals and vitrines and they're classical, they're like a box closed and with, a, with an acrylic um, hood on top. And when we received the question, the invitation to, to design this series of display cases for long-term use, started to um, study the spaces. And as I said outside, um, the spaces, are, the interiors are very diverse in this building. I mean, extending to the floor gallery and the floor material constantly changes, the finishings change, the colours of the halls change and also the time frames are shifting all the time. On top of it, the inside of the vitrines, what we will see over the years, will also be rotating and changing. So we decided to focus on the object itself because the space gives so much information but to start from that and to design was actually uh, perhaps too complicated. So we started to think about the display itself, and I'm very fascinated by Joseph Boy's uh, eleven vitrines for Basel, which he made. I think his his um, the simplicity of these display cases uh, are very yeah they're very impressive. They're just this thin, long legs, uh, like tall legs, and then he has this big. Uh, glass cases on top with a back wall, uh, very simply made. He designed them, he made them for his own works and you can see them in Basel, in a collection and you can see them also in different, like remakes of them in different boys exhibitions. It's a tall, very thin structure with a box on top of it, which you can watch frontally. It's very, very simple, and it has different finishings. It has, it has uh, metal finishing, it has the originals, I think, in timber, but the lightness of that object and then still the capacity of holding all this art, like a bit like a man on like some thin legs, but having a bit of a bigger belly. <laughs> it's a, somehow, it's, a, it's this kind of containing something on a very rather um, elegant structure being legs and not a box as a pedestal is something I try to follow also in other projects but in Tate we could uh, we could realize it as well. I think the the difference is quite clearly to be seen between the classical conventional uh, pedestal which does the same job as what our pedestal here does in the end. Mm. Mm. But um, it has a certain uh, say character and it stands there as an object itself. You don't know if you see it for the first time if it is part of a series or if it's part of the artwork mm. but you will keep on seeing it in few halls and then it will probably become this family which is spread so it's a table
0: should we meet the rest of the family
1: we should walk through and also see the great rehang project which is mm-hmm. a very ambitious um project of uh, of tate britain as i heard this morning my director like this was 800 works which you can see And now I have to find my way also again here,
0: because I think we start there. Yeah, it's hard to know where the rehang ends and begins.
1: (laughs) I think it's everywhere and all over, and uh, it has been also made in steps. So part of the collection has already opened a few months ago with the rehang, so now it's complete. They've been working parallel in some galleries rehanging, but others were open, so the museum never completely closed.
0: passing some temporary installations in the Divine and then we're turning left into the new collection displays
1: and this is where it starts with I the see. gallery 1
0: all right so we're now starting in the first gallery of the new of the rehang of the permanent uh, collection and it's a blue
1: gallery. They're all uh, also new colors which are assigned to the rooms, and I think the whole reorganization of the works has been very thoroughly thought through. This is the part of scenography we were not involved. I mean, it's such a big operation, and it has been already for quite some time. So this project was going on when we we started to work on our project. and then there were some color schemes. We didn't really know them beforehand. We, each time we came to, to check on the, um, on the prototypes and so on, I saw yet another room being in another color, mm-hmm. which was also, we will see a bit later, um, defining how we dealt with the inside of the display cases. Uh, but they're, they're quite um, strong colors. Mm-hmm. It's,
0: uh, so there's two projects in the way. There's a curatorial project that's addressed by a separate team. And then there's the scenographic project, which is developed by you and and your team. And of course, there are overlaps, but it's interesting to, as you're describing it, um, consider the moments where they do run in parallel and don't touch, that you are, in a way, developing a system that's versatile enough to take on decisions that are made that are outside of your control, like you're saying. For example, the color of the walls and the decision of what objects to display. If you make something which is
1: supposed to work everywhere, it probably doesn't work anywhere. So therefore, we thought, all right, we will design the structure, we will concentrate on it. What comes into the vitrine, we keep a little bit open and we'll see with the dialogue how we will deal with it. Mm -hmm. So the structure, the timber structure outside, which carries the glass hood, was what we concentrate upon detailed with the executing party and so on. And the inside came a little later and then we had to see how we can um, integrate our displays in the already taking decisions of the galleries mm-hmm. and actually it was not such a big difficulty but it took of course a while to find out what is the best way and if there's color involved um, I think it can be very informative so if you have a very present color in the in gallery and you take that over to the inside of a display case for instance you already make a visual connection and the visitor doesn't even think about it understands quite immediately mm-hmm. what the message is said that mm-hmm. display case belongs to here mm-hmm. and this kind of very simple tactics are what we followed um, on other sides it's like uh, just uh, there's this curatorial part which is sometimes difficult in in all temporary exhibitions i design until now, that for a long time you might not exactly know the final object list that has a lot to do with lenders and complications or things which get cancelled and so on And that is the biggest challenge, because you're designing something to give it the best conditions, but sometimes it doesn't even arrive. Mm. And then the whole, so just to focus on one or two objects is usually not very constructive Mm. in making this kind of work.
0: Mm -hmm. Could we talk a bit about what specifically is going on in this room? And I guess because there are so many rooms, maybe you can guide me um, in terms of which rooms are most important to dwell in, in which we could move through more quickly.
1: With this kind of like latest point uh, uh, where the rehang ended, I will also discover with you a little bit because okay. I've been a couple of months ago here mm-hmm. last time. Um, well, there is this look at the, um, this view at the collection, um, a refreshing view uh, with, with also contemporary topics and how to deal with them. And the main objective, as far as I understood also from the rehang was, to uh, give a fresh look on the collection, but also to be critical enough to what certain works might be, um, might be tackling or might be actually indicating. So there is always this combination in, in the galleries with the contemporary art surrounded by the permanent collection. So mm-hmm. there's this remarks or this nods or uh, maybe even a critical view by contemporary artists mm-hmm. becoming part of the collection and the collection itself. So we're in this room, there's exiles and dynasties. It's is, I think the earliest. It's quite chronological, um, and we see a lot of um, dynasty figures around us. Very figurative paintings. These are Tudor obviously.
0: era portraits.
1: Yeah, and um, and we have the Mona work, the two suitcases, and uh, and very centrally placed on a low pedestal. Um, and in a way, the, of course, the viewer is somehow challenged as well. You have to make connections which you maybe never thought of Mm -hmm. and that is of course demanding but also interesting
0: and so yeah these two suitcases in the center of the room as you say on a low pedestal it's great and they're completely decontextualized I mean I'm not sure how much um this was your decision, to give them such a wide berth? Um, such a that actually
1: that was already, uh, the, some of the works have been discussed anyway with the artists, yeah. if they, because they are, of course, many of the um, of the installation artists or sculptures. they can deal with the space very well themselves. Um, I usually like, or I was involved in exhibitions where the artists are sometimes not alive anymore, and that's kind of easier, <laughs> um, because there's also, of course, every artist, more or knows how to deal with space or knows how the work should be shown. Um, Architects become then rather the problem solvers of technical parts, which I'm not so interested in. Mm -hmm. So this was already actually given um, as a condition and also, of course, to protect the work. And if you put this work on the floor, then the the chance is big that someone might run into it and damage the work without even intending it. Mm -hmm. What I found interesting this morning is actually this axis, which um, which with these uh, two sisters uh, on the wall happens with these two suitcases.
0: Mm. Um. So we're in the center now and we're looking I guess between a portrait of two sisters in bed with two children in their arms and then we look back to the suitcases uh, which are standing in parallel and appear to be connected by locks of hair
1: and it, for me, it shares in this um, yeah, Unheimlichkeit, you can say in German, this kind of uncanniness of what this picture always had as an effect on me. Also, it's Mona work, and I find it now quite interesting that they're almost on the same
0: axis. Mm-hmm. Shall we continue? see for the second time the table table. which is now starting to feel a bit like an acquaintance (laughs) (laughs) we met it first in the Moore Hall and we're seeing it again here and there's six legs instead of five
1: you can make a lot of weight being carried
0: Mm -hmm. and the thick um, Side, uh, sill or surround means that you can go right up and lean against it, as Simon was just doing, placing their palm yeah. on the edge.
1: You can lean on it, but you cannot. Like you can also lean on the whole, um, on the whole case. But it is in itself, let's say, it's it's not a light object. It's not about the elegance of the lightness of structure. It is a table, almost like an old-fashioned table. Um, sound and and solid and it shows quite some nice um by um hogarth and there are there are three of them to be seen in the in the display case and here actually you start to also see the the color mm-hmm. inside the vitrine mm-hmm. which um which then has been adapted because for us this is the structure. Is what it is. Was inside is also there should be enough freedom for the museum to
0: deal with it. So, like a chameleon, the um, the surface inside yeah. the vitrine yeah. is mirroring the color of the walls. Of the walls yeah.
1: This kind of views we talked about before at the beginning of the conversation like why I would not put walls or why I would work an object-based approach I find this fascinating I mean one might like the aesthetics of it or not it's a different story but this this very large interior expanding to like to all these meters just fascinates me always in museums I think it's a very beautiful sight.
0: Mm -hmm. so we're looking down along the enfilade of rooms and we're we're standing in the troubled glamour glamour (laughs) room. The walls are painted a light baby blue, a robin's egg blue. Mm -hmm. And we see these kind of subdued typical plants painted the same color as the wall and we see again. The table, this time again with five legs. If I watch it now, in a kind of relatively um, empty hall,
1: it looks a bit like an animal which is walking.
0: Yeah, and its top heaviness and also just in the abundance of legs and in the fact that it's away from the wall and an object in the, the room, it really does feel like a kind of creature. <laughs> <laughs>
1: And also, I mean, if we watch from here through the door, you see like two next to each other and it becomes somehow like more parts of, of the rooms, I think, because this is the room where we have the most, like three mm-hmm. in one space. Mm-hmm. And again, like this, the, when you watch through, like this kind of side, because it's not in the middle, but it's just off the centre and start to also see them more and more. So we are in the 18th century now. Revolution and,
0: uh, and reform. Yeah. In a lecture you gave you mentioned that you've never been good at making models, that you design more through drawing.
1: Yeah.
0: What kind of drawings do you make there?
1: Very often I start with a certain uh, floor plan sketch, but um, as a reflex I try to go immediately to a section or so to just extrude them, and then I work actually with this method of this Ottoman miniature drawings Mm -hmm. which are actually also to be found much earlier in Gospels and Bibles this kind of um, drawings which are not realistic in their perspective
0: but they show in one scene uh, different planes different perspectives these are almost like isometric drawings where you have an idea of the plan but then a flattened illustration of the objects or figures. Actually, you
1: can see it like a kind of a box. Imagine that the bottom of the box is your floor plan and you Mm -hmm. start to open the sides of the box, box. unfold, and that becomes, and then I start to uh, manipulate and I connect the sides which are unfolded, which are normally each one side. So connect them in a perspective way. And from there I depart and I put the objects in which are not fitting that perspective, Mm -hmm. but they are object-based, so they have their own um, uh, vanishing points, mm. and that's how I usually draw. And also, um, mostly the first drawings we make for, for, uh, for curators for our clients are also that way. Mm. So we put everything on the, on, on the paper.
0: It reminds me of a chessboard, yeah. to to some extent, and it's a metaphor you've used in describing another project of yours, the Middleheim uh, yeah. Sculpture Park. Yeah. And I bring that up not only for that association, but also because in that project, you and the curator are working with statues that are, in some cases, now contested. Parts of, um, in this case, um, Belgium's difficult history around colonialism and imperialism. Sculptures that were once a part of the public realm Mm -hmm that are now needing to be recontextualized not necessarily destroyed or stowed away but recontextualized to some extent where do you see your role as a scenographer in engaging with difficult histories
1: first of all i think the the one role which i would not like to take is a judgmental role because uh Um, I come from a country where history is also not always very... um, I grew up in a country where history is not always easy to discuss, and I think it has to be open to discussion. And that's also what happens here. The interventions, exhibitions, and displays we designed are are for critical works. And then, (coughs) still, I think, therefore, as a designer, I want to give the respect these works also somehow um, yeah, deserve. In middle line projects for instance most of the works are indeed most of the sculptures, statues have been removed from the public space due to their complicated or contested history um, but someone also made them and not all of them are necessarily let's say wrong or it's not so easy to to just give one color to all these works so when um, the director of that collection came and asked to to give them a certain spatial arrangement, I, I started to work as an, as an architect. I, I, I see these pieces and there was this condition of the floor and no walls and the floor looked like a chessboard and these were like my triggers. And I found the topic very interesting to work on as it was a very modest project on all levels. But by rearranging them there, you open, you open a debate or a learning moments but hiding them won't help anything not remarking on these uh, on this permanent collection which also has its own history which is maybe not anymore I mean which we should be very critical about as well you have to be I think our role is to make things possible to open to debate and not to hide them and therefore that project in middle Lyme, as much as this project or any other project just deserve to care from a spatial point of view and also, um, not to hide things, but show them um, and give them a certain, say, meaning, a new meaning, the way they stand there. And now, actually, art students, they go from the academy and they, they sit down, they, they copy them just as, as statues. And, um, and then there's information next to them, where they come from, what they meant, uh, what might have been a problematic part of their history. If you don't know it, then it's very easy to condemn everything. I think I am certainly not, I mean, I have my personal views on values and also what is correct, what is respectful, general. Um, but when I'm asked for such a project, I just want to sustain the story in a, in a, in a constructive way mm-hmm. that you can talk about it.
0: Probably more more often than not, the scenographer is a kind of handmaiden to the curatorial vision. Mm-hmm. but. I imagine there must also be certain critical decisions that you've helped make to shift the perspective of a given work. Are there any examples of this you could talk about, either with this show or with another one?
1: Um, well, we had. I mean, it's always quite a difficult discussion if you try to do that because most of the time, curators come from an art historian's background, and they have. Uh, they've made always an enormous uh, archival research or, or also they know their topic very well, but the way they see works is very often also in a book or in two dimensions, so the way they want to see the work in the space is also often frontal when you arrive on your path of the exhibition. And I try to change it or challenge that because I think, for instance, in Brancouche again, we had these discussions with the main curator how to see the works. I lost one discussion, I won another discussion. Um, The kiss of Brancouche I wanted to show not frontally when you entered the room, but that you had to turn to see, so I wanted to turn it around and you would have seen it from the side. Mm -hmm. She did not agree, in the end it was frontally shown. In another room where we had muses, um, there I thought when you enter you can also see a sculpture from the back. And it doesn't matter because it's so well-made or deliberately left unmade, un, unfinished by Blancouche. It's part of the work. Mm. And that was a big discussion as well, which I luckily won. But it I mean challenging this kind of view of the visitor, despite the curatorial um, objectives, is sometimes a very um, spicy discussion.)
0: Mm. I watched a presentation you gave about the Brancusi exhibition, which was it at Beaux-Arts? Yep,
1: yeah. 2019.
0: And there's this anecdote that I think contextualizes a certain decision you made about how to display these muses. As you were exploring ways of exhibiting them, um, ventured out to Kettle's Yard in Cambridge, yeah. where you were shown one of the muses sitting on top of a piano the lacquered surface of a piano in this domestic setting. People um, are likely familiar with Kettle's Yard. It's basically a residential interior that has become a museum. And I was so surprised to see, in a way, how influential that experience was for you, where encountering this sculpture in this casual environment atop this very specific surface, for you is an experience that you tried to replicate in the Beaux-Arts exhibition in a way that seems quite personal, but also to maybe pick up where we began the conversation, quite authoritative, that there is a decisive intent um, on your behalf as a designer to reproduce a certain experience you had. I mean, are there other examples like that where something that struck you outside the white cube, outside the confines of the museum, um, was brought back in? To, effect, to produce a certain effect or encounter with an object?
1: Actually, almost all exhibition designs have that a little bit. The very first one I made on, um, on Anatolia, um, uh, Land of Rituals in Bozar, my very first own project for Europa Turkey at the time. It was also mainly what I knew from the countryside of Turkey and I wanted to bring it back, a certain furniture used, a foldable furniture, vernacular furniture you can say, used on the countryside. I wanted to bring it in and try to reinterpret it. Um, many people from Turkey would be familiar to it, but it was an experience um, I tried to use. And then a parallel with that exhibition was another one on photography, Imagine Istanbul, where my experience as an Istanbulite, you say, like like having grown up there, of the city, gave the direction to the design completely. I wanted to make a kind of a bit confusing walk through this very geometric, very rigid halls of Horta. And by placing these walls, turning them around and so on, I thought I was achieving it. And also that you would go around the wall, discover something is very much, Related to my experience, having grown up in that city, where I still discover things, um, so there are there are many of these very personal uh, uh, impressions or ideas which come into the project. But I'm also aware of the fact that the visitor will not know that.
0: Mm, it's a very subtle infusion.
1: It gives me the, the the motivation to to base the design on on something and. And it doesn't have to be understood actually by everyone like that. I mean, I'm, I'm not really very concerned about it. But if I'm asked how I design something, that there is a logic to it, and I, I like to be able to explain it. But it is not. it doesn't have to be even told. In the end, it becomes very autonomous. Mm-hmm. And um, what I try not to do is a, is a aha effect for an exhibition. And that's for me quite, a, I think, I'm not conservative, but I think I like classical design matters a lot. So this
0: kind of uh, uh, very loud scenography is not something which I appreciate. Tell me more about this aha moment. I mean, if it's a a scenario in a way that you're in opposition to with your exhibition design, what's an example of the antithesis of of what you do? I think the
1: the very, um, very, say exaggerated use of multimedia or this kind of uh the the new um line of immersive spaces which is still i think in development because i think it might be very interesting one day but right now it's very basic i find this kind of you blow up a detail of a painting and you fill the rooms walls with it and you start to walk in it these are things i don't necessarily would like to do, or I wouldn't like to go there. Sometimes mm. we get the question to deal with it mm. in the media, um, but I still believe in the object quality of artworks, and I think to see a real artwork somewhere, to experience it, and also to go close to it, to understand it, is important. And that's that is the antithesis to this replaceability
0: of an artistic work by by showing it through another medium. This is interesting. So, in a way, what we're talking about is a certain allegiance to the analog. Yes. And at the same time, there's something in one of the exhibitions I really enjoyed that struck me as being kind of virtual, and it was the Ferdinand Leger exhibition called Beauty is Everywhere which was this grand retrospective of the artist showing his paintings, printed matter and sculptures. And there are all these, are all these transparencies which are doing different things at the same time. They're barriers, they're surfaces for display, they're enclosures, um, but I think most interestingly, they are these screens that augment the viewer's experience of the exhibition in a term that I would call Pollyannish. It's a kind of American, do you know? Instead of rose-tinted though, it's yellow-tinted. And to me, this is where the exhibition design starts to edge towards some kind of virtual encounter where you're augmenting the user's experience of the exhibition in ways that that try and reveal something that's hidden. Yeah.
1: I'm really happy that you mentioned it this way because then we kind of um, we reached what we had in mind and without knowing it apparently it had that impression on you because um, that was a project uh, Jurgen Persain from Brussels and I we did together Um, it was a collaborative project and uh, we thought as the title of the exhibition was as well um, uh, Beauty Everywhere and the time frame of when Van Alegre was most active, was, was Interbellum, it was between two world wars. We, d- we thought of him going around with this kind of warm filter in front of, the, of a camera, of a lens, to see the world more beautiful than it was, because it was certainly not the most beautiful time. And we wanted to introduce this warmness and this kind of almost indeed naive look at the work and like trying to make something nicer of it, that it's almost as if the sun was shining through. And next to that uh, was a simple fact, and that's again, of course, where spatial issues come um, to mind. That exhibition had only paintings. There were, I think, two or three three dimensional works. And bazaar halls are a bit like in Tate Britain, a bit smaller, but still very grand. And if you just hang everything on the walls, there's nothing happening in the space and it becomes very um, tiring and exhausting. You don't watch the works after three holes anymore. So we needed something to structure the spaces, to make the curatorial steps, to introduce them with these screens. It's kind of an introductory work on them. Um, and to also make this the rooms more than, vast spaces where you have one uh, one painting next to the other. But while making the screens, thought also, let's manipulate the view and suggest to the visitor how he might have gone around. And we deliberately did not choose all primary colors, just chose this warm yellow, which was not liked by everyone. I mean, I have to say that I also heard some critique about it, like that it was too present. And it's true, it was present, but then again not, because you passed it and then you saw the works. So we indeed there maybe kind of manipulated it the most, how you would uh, experience works. There it was more than facilitating displays. it was also of course laying and putting a layer on top of a, the content.
0: Mm. Let's continue on to the rest of the rooms. Okay, so we're in room number nine now, also conscious that you're seeing this for the first time.
1: I am also seeing the final version for the first time. We were watching, of course, over the course of timeless plans and where, what comes and you have another view. And being in the spaces is also this kind of discovery, which I also have to uh, breathe in slowly. Mm if you start to watch in detail this really and you can see it even through here from the gallery um, 9 towards 4 that is all very different um, mm-hmm. and these are things which we of course try to take care of so what do you see from which side and how do they look like
0: I think that's such a good way of putting it to, to take care of a certain encounter with the work Yeah. I mean as I was researching your practice and listening to your lectures, I was thinking if I were a dead artist I would love for you to take care of my work. <laughs> Thank you, this is very,
1: very kind. I sometimes think they must be also turning saltos in their graves. And like, <laughs> it's also possible that they do that.
0: But it seems like at least given the work of yours I've encountered it's artists like Brancusi that have perhaps a more personal connection, or at least the anecdotes you've shared about working with that collection. I mean, you're imagining, for example, these muses after hours in the museum gossiping with each other. About the uh, museum garas they've seen that day. Do you have these kinds of fantasies you yes, like develop? This.
1: I think I have that often. I mean, I I can make them sometimes public in a lecture or also just tell you the glass of wine uh, while mm. talking about it. But um, actually, this uh, this this also these drawings with miniatures and so on. There, if I reflect on all these aspects of how I design. It's a bit of a way of um, escaping a bit the reality, not that I don't like reality, but it's just this kind of space where you can have a bit of fun with it or a joke, or you're not constantly under pressure of fulfilling a certain um, execution of reality, and that's when I like to mm-hmm. fantasize about mm-hmm. these things. It's very nice to get lost in a museum, I find. Mm-hmm
0: which you can't help but doing here, as you're saying. I think so, yeah. You can't really draw a straight line through the chronology of this exhibition spatially.
1: No, spatially is almost impossible because Mm -hmm. for that you would really need a um, uh, one-way spatial organization. And here there are side rooms and side galleries and they're connected and there's an Mm -hmm. extension and it keeps on growing.
0: Mm. that, That kind of dizziness almost. Yeah. the presence of history, is really felt in the way we're moving through yeah. the exhibition now. And the autonomy really is placed on the, the museum-goer to dictate a path.
1: But also, of course, this kind of museum, this kind of collection, is not to be completely understood by one visit. This is an institution where, if you live in London or in England, you can come many times back and see things again and again. I find this great that it's just here and you can come back and you can watch the same work again in 10 years and it's different. And when a child now comes to this permanent collection will maybe keep one or other thing in mind and in 10, 15 years there will be another um, uh, uh, say consciousness and the works will be still here. Mm-hmm. I think that's very nice in mm-hmm. terms of some base on, uh, on history, on culture, on on mm-hmm. arts.
0: You do write a lot. Mm-hmm. You are involved critically in reflecting on your discipline as a scenographer. What are your debates? How would you characterize your fixations or the puzzles you're trying to um, piece together in the writing you do?
1: I think my main debate, if I have to formulate it, is um, that culture is not a luxury as a cultural producer party, but also as a citizen. And because I don't like populistic discussions about um, what culture should be or how. Uh, even history can be flattened to a very accessible and very quick communication to people. I think it's great to want to learn and that that, that cultural institutions also stimulate you to learn, that it's fantastic that you don't understand everything at once. Um, and to keep some of the uh, some of the fascination for history and culture everywhere by uh, having institutions, by having spaces, by having architecture, by having gardens if you want. I mean, can be in many ways. It's, 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 um, it's really necessary to, to educate ourselves or to educate each other. Um, and there is no shame of having, having a culture. Mm-hmm. And I think that is, if there is a debate, I try to silently um, uh, follow is the necessity of, of culture in um, in society, not as a, as an elitarian concept. It's just, you know, to to as an educational concept also, um, and that is something which I try to to yeah try to stand for or try to uh, write about. So.
0: Thinking about what we've seen here and the other exhibitions you've designed to me, I can start to appreciate the f- phenomenon or act of understanding as something that's, in fact, ongoing. And that occurs, to, to borrow a term from the poet Ben Lerner, in chords, that there are different registers of understanding, sometimes um, in opposition that to understand is an unfinished act that, um, as you say, brings us away from the flattening out of the telling of history and starts to expose new relationships.
1: Hopefully, I think there is nothing more dangerous than putting one colour in one thing because um, that would be really imposing and that would be really everything else than making something inclusive or accessible. Um, and to 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 just make it possible that it can be seen in different ways, and the sounds again, like somehow Maybe like vague and too open. But what I mean with that is that of course one has an opinion. Everyone has an opinion. But this kind of treasure of culture or or content, I think it has to be opened, and everyone should be able to, not maybe immediately, but over time, or maybe a half an hour later, to have an idea, to, to, to have a small opinion about it. And, uh, and I hope that, indeed, these layers, they make it possible, but that would be at least uh, the approach in design and also mentally from my side.
0: Ashley, thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> You've been listening to Scaffold. I'm Matthew Blunderfield, and I produce the show. The theme music is composed and performed by Luke Blair. Subscribe to Scaffold on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at scaffold underscore podcast. If you like the show, spread the word and leave a rating on iTunes. Thanks to Ashley Chichek, Thanks as always to Skandalin and thanks to you for listening. I'll see you next time.